This is a special edition of the Citizen of Heaven podcast, my top 10 underrated Bible characters. I'm Hal Hammond, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, sharing, and subscribing. Ranking people in the Bible is a chancy proposition, and when the criteria is something as vague as being underappreciated, that goes double. What follows is the list I shared last week with my Facebook group, Heaven Citizens. If you're on Facebook, please look us up. Here are the rules for my list. Maximum impact, minimum credit, and don't have a book with the Bible named after you. Enjoy. All right, before we get into the actual top 10 list, let me offer one further bit of clarification. There is a certain very special class of Bible characters who tend to, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, be famous for not being famous. They get a lot of sermons preached about them, essentially making the point that we really need to give so-and-so more credit than we do. Most preachers I know have an Andrew sermon, for instance. Andrew is never the star of the show, but he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. He brings Peter to Jesus, and of course, Peter becomes one of the most prominent apostles of all. Barnabas is probably the most famous example of this sort of thing, always playing second fiddle to Paul, never being the star of the show, and perfectly okay with that. So characters like them, Mordecai, Hannah, will be left off of this list also. Your favorite very well may be excluded for this reason or for some other reason. Hope nobody takes offense. At any rate, enough lollygagging. Here's my top 10 list, and take it for what it's worth. Number 10, I have Caleb. And Caleb very nearly made it onto that second list of people who got disqualified. Because we do tend to give Caleb a lot of credit for not getting credit. He is one of the two spies in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 who give a favorable report. He and Joshua want to go forward. They want to take the land, as Moses had indicated. And the people push back. In fact, Caleb gets more attention in the actual storytelling than Joshua does. He's certainly at least as enthusiastic as Joshua. And yet it is Joshua who gets a book named after him. It is Joshua who leads the people into the land. Caleb has to take second place, essentially. If that were the only story about Caleb in the text, I would have excluded Caleb from this list. But Caleb comes up a couple of other times, and I think it's important that we consider that. Stories that don't necessarily get as much airtime as the Kadesh Barnea incident. In Joshua chapter 14 and 15, and again in Judges chapter 1, Caleb is seen as taking an active role in conquering territory in the land of Canaan. He gets a special inheritance and wants to find one that is difficult to take because He, even at 85 years old, wants to be a force for righteousness. He goes beyond that and promises a further inheritance to the one who would conquer another part of the property, promising his daughter as, I don't want to say prize exactly, but a reward at least for doing this. And this brings the man Othniel to prominence, who eventually becomes the first judge of the nation. So Caleb has a profound impact in these early days and doesn't really get credit for those things as much as he might. So I'll go ahead and include him here at number 10. Number nine is Enoch. 
Enoch is a pretty easy pick for this list. I have him this low in the text because he does appear in three different books of the Bible. But those three books of the Bible amount to just a handful of verses. And very, very little is said about Enoch. He lived for 365 years. He had a son named Methuselah. And there is that strange bit of business in Genesis chapter 5 where he was not found, for God took him. Evidently, Enoch did not experience death in the conventional sense, at least. Only he and Elijah have that said of him in the Bible. So he's a pretty remarkable individual, no doubt about that. And even though he does not appear in a great many passages of the text, he has a profound impact where he does appear. He's called a prophet in the book of Jude. He is one of the faithful ones that are described in Hebrews chapter 11, the roll call of faith sometimes we call him. So even though he may not be as frequently mentioned as, for instance, Caleb, he does appear a fair amount, and he does not get the attention that he deserves as far as I'm concerned. So I'll include him in the list here. Number eight, I have Micaiah, who is a prophet that only has one story told about him. He's not as prominent as he might be. It's told in 1 Kings chapter 22 in the parallel account in 2 Chronicles. Micaiah is a prophet of God in the court of Ahab, the wicked king. And if that's all that it was, then maybe Micaiah would miss the list also. That's not a very long passage that he's in. It's only one story. But it's not just that he was able to speak truth to power, as we sometimes say these days. It's not just that he was able to stand up in the face of Ahab and say, you're going to die if you go into this battle. It's also that he got a glimpse into heavenly glory. There are not many Bible characters who actually got to look into heaven. There are visions granted, most notably, perhaps, to John, the evangelist in the book of Revelation. He has extended visions of heavenly glory. If the Apostle Paul is talking about himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and pretty much everybody thinks that he is, Paul would be included in that. He heard things that are not proper, not lawful for us to utter. Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1, those prophets got visions of heaven. Stephen saw the Lord standing at the right hand just before he was stoned in Acts chapter 7. And if you wanted to include Jacob and the heavenly ladder where angels were ascending and descending, that might be another one to add into the list. Other than that, though, heaven is completely withheld from human beings, no matter how great they may have been perceived to be. But you have to add Micaiah to the list. Micaiah was able not only to see into heaven, but also to hear heavenly conversations, an explanation for why it was that Ahab was going to receive this punishment, how it could be that his prophets would essentially set him up for failure the way that they were. This is an insight into heavenly things that you just don't get very often. And so, at least for that purpose, I think Micaiah needs to be on the list. Number seven, I have Jehoiada, and if there's anybody on the list that you haven't heard of, likely it's Jehoiada. Jehoiada is the priest who is responsible for the preservation and the ascension of King Joash. Joash is the grandson of Queen Athaliah, the only real queen of the people of God, and the only ruler in Judah who was not descended from David. Athaliah is the daughter of Ahab. Ahab's daughter married Jehoshaphat's son. More on that later. And as a result, the kings of Judah took a bad turn. 
most notably when Jehu assassinated Jehoshaphat's son, Athaliah finished the job by getting rid of anybody who was left of the family and appointed herself queen. She missed Joash, thankfully, and Jehoiada sequestered him for six years, protected him from harm. And then when the time was right, he was able to bring him to the throne, and Joash was a force for righteousness with the guidance of Jehoiada. That's described in 2 Kings chapter 11 and 12. For two chapters, the story of Jehoiada dominates. The story of Joash really is the story of Jehoiada. He was the one who was, you might say, pulling the strings. He was the one who was the force for good in this administration. And then sadly, when Jehoiada died, Joash kind of fell apart. He was taken in by idolaters. He essentially did the work that his grandmother had been doing, the work that Ahab had been doing, going so far as to even kill Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, who was prophesying against him. So clearly Jehoiada's impact for a relatively brief period of time was pretty powerful and deserving of recognition, a lot more than he tends to get anyway. Number six, I'm going to give you a twofer. This is Aquila and Priscilla, or Aquila, sometimes it's pronounced. Aquila and Priscilla are presented here as two for one because that's the way the Bible presents them. They're never mentioned separate from one another. They're always together, always doing the work of God. And they appear in, in five or six passages in the text, most notably perhaps in Acts chapter 18, where they're given credit for teaching Apollos more accurately and encouraging him in the truth, sending him off to, to preach the gospel. Paul runs into this couple whom he had worked with in secular work. He bumps into them in, in various places. He sends letters to them when he is communicating with other churches. The implication seems to be that wherever they were, they were starting churches or building up churches or expanding the work of the church. They were busy about the work always. If your local evangelist has a sermon on married couples, no doubt Aquila and Priscilla feature prominently in that sermon, and certainly they should, because those two work together as a tandem, very much like Paul and Barnabas did, or Paul and Silas later on, or any number of other couples that you might want to mention there. A tremendous example for married people today, and a reminder that men and women are equal in the eyes of God, both of them important, both of them have roles in the church. That's number six, Aquila and Priscilla working together. Number five is Jehoshaphat. I said I would come back to him, and here we are. Jehoshaphat would have to be numbered as one of the three greatest kings in the history of the southern kingdom of Judah, along with Josiah and Hezekiah. Jehoshaphat's story is told to us in 1 Kings chapter 22. Remember the Micaiah story. He is in the hall there with Ahab and Micaiah when all of this goes down. And this is the one thing that should be laid at Jehoshaphat's feet in a negative sense. He was a great king, one who loved the Lord, one who was dutiful. It was his idea that Micaiah be brought in to give his word, by the way. But it's worth noting that he is in the hall with Ahab. He is the one who sets up this marriage. Even this weakness of his, though, even this failing of his, is rooted in a love for the people of God. Judah and Israel are constantly bickering with one another. They're constantly at war. Such should not be the case. Jehoshaphat knows that. He wants to have an alliance with Ahab. And that makes a lot of sense spiritually and politically. 
it winds up having terrible, terrible consequences, of course. It's easy to second-guess such things. But I don't doubt for a second that his heart was in the right place. At any rate, he is a force for righteousness throughout his reign. The text commends him greatly for the things that he was able to do, much like his father Asa did before, in his later years, Asa's faith seems to have failed him. Jehoshaphat's faith did not fail him, and that speaks well for him. At number four, I have Philip the Evangelist. And the more I started thinking about Philip, the higher he tended to crawl on this list. Philip is a truly remarkable character and doesn't get nearly the credit they should get for a couple of reasons. One, he shares a name with one of the apostles. And so therefore, when we see Philip in the book of Acts, we tend to think that it's Philip the apostle, which it is not, except for the one instance in chapter one when the actual apostles are listed. And secondly, he is one of the seven, sometimes called the first deacons in Acts chapter 6, along with Stephen, which is another reason why Philip perhaps does not get as much attention as he might, because Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is there in that group with him. Stephen gets a lot of attention, and properly so. Chapter 7 is given entirely over to a consideration of Stephen's arrest and his defense of himself and ultimately his execution. But the text spends a lot more time emphasizing Philip's work than it does Stephen's work. In chapter 8, Philip is the first one to preach the gospel to somebody who's not a Jew, as far as we can tell. He goes to Samaria, these ones who share something of a heritage in the God of heaven, but not really any actual blood. They aren't partakers in the promises in the fullest sense. But Jesus had promised that the gospel would go to the Samaritans before it would go to the Gentiles. And here we are. And Philip is the one who is taking the gospel, not one of the apostles, not Stephen. It's Philip. And yet when we read this story, this remarkable historical event, it tends very strongly not to be the Philip story. It tends to be the Simon the sorcerer story. Because of course, Simon is one of the Samaritans that receives the gospel and then winds up trying to buy the power of God with money. Later on in the same chapter, he is on the Gaza road and encounters an Ethiopian nobleman, and he is struggling with this passage in what we would call Isaiah chapter 53. And again, Philip plays this very important role, preaching to someone who is not from Israel at all, evidently a proselyte Jew from Ethiopia. And because of Philip's work, the gospel goes to Africa, as far as we can tell, for the first time. And this passage also is not referred to typically as the passage about Philip. It's the passage about the Ethiopian eunuch or the Ethiopian nobleman. And then you may not even be aware that Philip comes up in conversation again in chapter 21 of Acts. And as the father of daughters, I can especially appreciate this. He has four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. So clearly Philip's impact on the world is not just in out there evangelism. He's walking the walk. In his own family, his own family is standing for the truth and evangelizing in much the same way that he had also in his life. So I think it's very important that we give Philip his due, and we tend not to. I don't as much as I should. Maybe I'm going to try to work on that. Number three, I have Deborah. And I mentioned that having a book named after you would be an automatic exclusion. That is credit. I didn't say anything about songs. Deborah has a song named after her. And as such, becomes not just a prominent force for politics and for righteousness in her time, but she endures. The Song of Deborah is something that stands the test of time. 
People are singing this song, remembering this song, reading this song centuries after the fact. The story is given to us in Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5, how Deborah is not only a judge, but also a prophetess, a wife, someone who the nation truly relied on. And she is able to consolidate several tribes in this effort to throw off the oppression of the enemy. And because of her impact, she is able to embolden Barak, who is leading the army, to a great victory. And when we look at Barak and his hesitation to go to battle without Deborah, sometimes that's seen as some kind of slight against Barak. And I prefer to look at it as a complete and total dependence on Deborah. I think it's more comment on the strength of Deborah's character and the importance of Deborah's relationship with the nation than anything about Barak himself. Clearly, Deborah was of vital importance in her day, one of the most powerful and influential judges in this time in history, two chapters entirely given over to the Deborah story. So that is plenty to merit her a spot on this list. Number two is James, the brother of John, not James, the brother of Jesus. He has a book named after him and therefore he's excluded. James, the brother of John, though, gets almost no attention. And the more I started thinking about this, the more upset I got about it. James is one of the three apostles that seem to have formed the core support group during Jesus' ministry. It's always Peter, James, and John. We know a lot about Peter. Peter's always shooting his mouth off about something. We know a lot about John. John wrote five books of the New Testament. But James hardly ever comes up in conversation. And on the rare occasion that he does, it's always in the context of John. And then once Jesus is crucified and risen and ascended to heaven, once the apostles start going out into the world, James is the first one of the apostles to die. Acts chapter 12 tells us the story of him being killed by Herod with a sword. John, his brother, apparently his younger brother, would be the longest lived apostle of them all, according to very reliable history. James dies almost immediately upon the birth of the church in very early years. And it's just a single verse. And then he's gone. No memorial, no sad words or any such thing as that. He's just gone now. That's a story I'd like to hear more about. And through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, we don't. But the number of times he comes up in conversation, the importance of those conversations pushes him almost to the top of this list, but not to number one. And for me, number one is a no-brainer. And if you've been listening to my preaching for the last 10 or 15 years, you might be ahead of me on this. The number one character on this list for me is Elisha, and it's Elisha by a mile. Elisha has more said of him, a lot more said of him, than his famous mentor, Elijah. And yet it's Elijah that always gets the credit. We hear about Elijah in his wars with Ahab. We hear about Elijah at Mount Carmel, Elijah at Mount Horeb, etc. I don't want to take anything away from Elijah at all. Elijah is one of the great Bible characters, no doubt about that. But it's not Elisha's fault that his name sounds so much like his mentor's name. But because Elijah is so prominent, because the names are so similar, half the time when we're talking about Elisha and the things that Elisha did, we call him Elijah. I find myself doing it sometimes, and it drives me crazy. 
Elisha is the one who participates in the healing of Naaman and his leprosy. Elisha is the one who sees the chariots of fire that are surrounding the enemies of God's people. Elisha is the one who raises somebody from the dead after he himself has already died. His bones are in a cave and a dead person comes in contact with his bones and he comes back from the dead. Nobody else has anything remotely like that said about them. And that's enough to convince me that Elisha does not just deserve a sermon every once in a while. He deserves series of sermons about commitment to God and faithfulness and endurance. Elisha's a great character. You need to go back and read the first part of 2 Kings if you haven't lately. Half of the book of 2 Kings is given over to the story of Elisha. He doesn't appear in every single chapter, but he is the prominent character in half of an entire book of the Bible. That's a lot more time than anybody else on this list and enough to convince me that he is, in my estimation anyway, the most underrated hero in the Bible. Feel free to agree or disagree as you choose. Feel free to comment and give me feedback regarding who you think might be appropriate. Use the Facebook group, Heaven Citizens, to maybe even put a list like this together. Or give me ideas about further lists. I would like to do a villains list one of these days. Some of my favorite Bible characters are villains. Hopefully this, though, has encouraged you to study the Bible more, to appreciate the heroes, whether they are sung or unsung, that have shown us the way in many aspects of our life, helped us draw closer to God, helped us to draw closer to God's will, given us examples to follow, and helped us to be the kind of people that God would have us be. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.